show me the way to oh, I'm taking my time on my ride. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as a playlist. Although I started life as a playlist in June of last year, six months after the first known COVID case in the United States, and three months after I'd seen my students in a classroom, I haven't mentioned the pandemic much, if at all, on this show. I've discussed sex, reproductive rights, mental health, the election, and many other socio-political topics. Began on the virus that has killed over 470,000 Americans, and which kills both Black and Latinx people at nearly three times the rate of white people, I've been silent. At first I thought, it's possible I haven't discussed it because I'm currently living through it, and this podcast has been a form of therapy for me to discuss issues impacting me. But then I realized what I'm saying in that statement, because I've discussed lots of social and political issues, but yet not this one. And I thought about it, and as a white middle-class woman, I have the privilege to work at home and only leave my home by my choice when necessary. I know COVID is very real and very serious, but I'd been fortunate that nobody in my inner circle had gotten seriously ill or died from the disease. Recently, that has changed. In the past few months, I've lost a relative, albeit a great aunt living in another state I didn't know well, a friend of nearly 20 years, a wonderful, brilliant, witty, warm, and beautiful person, only in her mid-sixties, who went from questioning whether her illness was even severe enough to see a doctor, to dying on a ventilator. After being vented, removed from the vent where we were all hopeful, and then suffering from a secondary infection, and being vented again, and then passing the next day, while her husband, to whom she'd been married for mere months, was with her, holding her hand as she passed. Then, I had multiple students and colleagues suffer from COVID, and then, a student with which I had a particularly meaningful relationship was hospitalized, and after weeks on a ventilator, succumbed, alone, to this insidious virus. Before I tell you more about my incredible student, let's back up. For those of you who may not know, I teach incarcerated students and have taught them for the past four years through Cal State Los Angeles's Communication BA Prison Program, which is one of the only programs in the United States offering a bachelor's degree teaching students face-to-face inside a prison college classroom. Over these past few years, I've had the opportunity to teach over 40 incarcerated students in two cohorts, classes such as intro to communication, interviewing, research methods, applied writing, and between both cohorts, several more. Because our program is small and with but a handful of instructors, I've been fortunate to have these men as a regular presence in my life and to have learned much more from them over these past few years than they've learned from me. But I know there's always a So this past March 2020, I made the one-hour scenic drive through the mountains from my home in Glendale, California, to the city of Lancaster to teach my students organizational communication. I like the drive as an introvert. I was alone in my car for a solid hour, 
could listen to music, catch up on podcasts, and just enjoy silence, save for the quiet hum of cars on the open road. My students, knowing and appreciating that we made long drives both ways to teach their classes, always asked me at the start of each class, Hey, Professor Black, how was your drive? And I always smiled, told them it was a beautiful day and a relaxing drive, and that I was excited to see them. Note, prisons now are nearly always built in rural areas. This wasn't the case prior to 1980, but because of the prison industrial complex, we now have over 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States, with black men more than three times as likely to be incarcerated than white men, and another 4.8 million on probation or parole, meaning that nearly 3% of the entire U.S. population is currently under correctional supervision, and rural areas that have lost other types of industry want the paid work. This also means that most people who teach the incarcerated or counsel them or family members who want to visit spend more time and money traveling to access them, further punishing those who are already being punished in a racist system. As we exchanged our usual pleasantries, I started my organizational communication class with some inclination that all of our worlds were about to change, although I had no idea the scope or the magnitude and I had no idea how much my students knew, if anything, about COVID. On the main campus where I teach, rumors were flying around about whether schools would be shut down. The first school closures were starting to happen in New York, but I was still teaching classes unmasked. I remember hearing a news report that day that masks were still unnecessary. Teaching in a prison is different from teaching in a main classroom. We, of course, have to undergo special training, and in that training, we're taught not to engage in over-familiarity with our students and to keep personal disclosures to a minimum. So I agonize, should I bring up COVID in class, wait for them to bring it up, stick to the subject matter at hand? I didn't want to panic anyone necessarily. I mostly stuck to the course material that day, and outside of a student who pulled me aside and asked me what I thought of, as he put it, everything that was going down right now, And I told him, let's stay as safe as we can, knowing that's damn near impossible in a prison, and hope for the best. As I drove home that night, worried and exhausted, my fears were realized. It was the last time I'd ever see my class. This was a Tuesday, and by that Friday, March 13th, I wouldn't see any of my students face-to-face, incarcerated or otherwise, in a classroom. I have continued to teach my students, including the incarcerated ones, virtually. I even had the opportunity to meet with my incarcerated students over Zoom, which was wonderful, but also sobering. Even though they were self-censoring and selectively sharing because correctional officers could be in earshot, the educational coordinator was there, I could see the fear, fatigue, and frustration on their faces and hear it in their voices. What they did share was horrific enough many of their friends and cellmates coming down ill, and without access to the educational programs they were used to, or at least as much access, they spent most of their days either at work or in their cells, and their visits were limited, and that was affecting their mental, physical, and emotional health. The pandemic has shined a light on the glaring disparities between the incarcerated and the free. While many of us worry when we have to buy groceries in person or touch the gas pump and decide whether to have a greatly downsized Thanksgiving or just have Christmas over Zoom entirely, 
Incarcerated people do not have the option to always follow good hygiene protocol or to social distance or to eat healthy as they'd like to boost their immune systems. Currently, over one in six incarcerated people had or currently have COVID. More than 2,300 have died, including my dear student. While the government has released a tiny percentage of prisoners who are elderly or immunocompromised, far too many are languishing in inhumane and unsafe institutions. The ACLU has stories on its website about how incarcerated people are particularly suffering. As one inmate, Idir Bailey, stated, when he was sick and tried to get help from the infirmary, the nurses kept sending him back to the dorm without even taking his temperature. He was unable to even procure pen or paper to file a grievance. After 15 attempts at help, he was found to have over a 106-degree fever and was COVID positive, by that point potentially having infected dozens of others. As a type 2 diabetic, he was terrified he was going to die, but staff wouldn't even permit him to call his wife. His advice for others in a similar situation was, pray. And when Katrina Balderrama was pregnant and tested positive for COVID in April, with severe headaches and a fever, she was terrified. She blames as the reason she miscarried. The fact she was forced to live in a 5 by 10 foot cell in a unit with 200 other women, oftentimes only having one square of toilet paper per day and no soap at all. After testing positive, she was moved to a basement area called The Hold, which was in such disgusting condition, with food under the bed and feces on the wall. The facility even withheld her asthma inhaler. As she grieved, an officer told her her release papers had come through. Responding excitedly, the officer said, April Fools, and see you in hell when you die from COVID-19. The nearby deputies laughed uproariously. I wasn't privy to as many details about my student, who I'll refer to as T. Because, unfortunately, unlike Idir and Katrina, he didn't survive his ordeal with COVID. I had the privilege of knowing T when I taught my first class in the program in the spring of 2019. He was a member of our first cohort of students, and he was the only student in the cohort who had already obtained a bachelor's degree prior to his incarceration. He'd also served in the military. T's classmates called him the scholar. He had a gravitas both to his writing and in his speech. But although he was a serious academician, always helping classmates to edit and revise their papers, his most noticeable physical traits were his inquisitive eyes and a smile that could light up even the darkest room in a federal penitentiary. He was introverted, or at least came across that way in class. And although he was an excellent and impassioned public speaker, engaging his classmates with his intellectual prowess when giving classroom presentations. He admitted to me he struggled with communication anxiety, and much of his research in my classes over the years was studying this phenomenon and working to update the theory of communication apprehension with the goal of helping others who struggled with communication and public speaking. Although I always liked he in, the, in our earlier classes, I didn't speak to him as much as some of the other men in the cohort. Partly because of my own introversion, I tended to spend more time speaking one-on-one -on -one with those of his classmates who asked more questions after class or who stayed after class, either for one-on-one -on -one help with assignments, 
to ask me if I could obtain research articles for them as materials were limited in the prison. And one aspect of prison teaching is that the students do not have internet access to conduct the type of research expected of college students. T seemed to already have quite an extensive library and he made fewer requests. And because we're both introverts, while he was always courteous and would wish me a good night, he wasn't as exuberant as some of the other guys who would jokingly offer me some of their food when they returned from dinner break, or tell me I should listen to Lupe Fiasco's Tetsuo and Youth album on the way home, highly recommended by the way, or should stop at a nearby local joint for dinner, or just ask me my astrological sign or MBTI type just to try to find out a little bit more about me. Because T rightly prided himself on his academic ability, I was told he was hurt with some of the grades and feedback in one of my courses, which were still excellent, by the way. He also shared with our coordinator that he felt I didn't like him as much or give an equal amount of attention to him as I did some of his classmates. When I heard this, I was hurt and slightly incredulous. Of course I liked him and respected him and admired him. But as I considered his perspective, I knew it was valid. While I hadn't intentionally treated him differently, I still impacted him, and I still did. Because the next semester I taught the other cohort of students, it wasn't until nearly a year later that I had tea in class again. I was determined not to obnoxiously overcompensate in my interactions with him, but knew it was my responsibility to get to know him better and to really listen to him. Since this was a research methods course, I reserved time in class to speak with the guys individually or in their research teams about their research projects. One afternoon, T's partner wasn't in class, and I had the opportunity to speak with him one-on-one. It was one of the best, most enjoyable, and most transformative conversations of my life. He opened up about his family and how he was disappointed in, in himself that he was incarcerated rather than taking care of them in their older age the way he'd planned. He shared details about his earlier education and his career prior to incarceration, And we also just talked about his love of Motown and R&B music. I told him that R&B was also my first music love starting in middle school. And we bonded over our mutual love for Smokey Robinson with his sweet soul-drenched falsetto. And I shared with him how lucky I was to stand mere feet away from the legend Ray Charles as he performed. He also shared with me his love of jazz and blues, and I shared with him that I was raised on Thelonious Monk and Django Reinhardt and He was pleasantly surprised at some of the artists that I knew. From that day forward, we had a newfound respect for each other, one based on care, listening, empathy, and mutual interest. When I learned that our cohort one students, including T, would complete their very last class this past fall, by Zoom and correspondence, due to the pandemic, I hurt for them. This amazing group of students, some of whom are now released and taking classes with me on the main campus, with others potentially up for parole soon, and still others who will likely spend the rest of their lives incarcerated. We deserve to be together. And that opportunity was stolen from them by an incompetent Trump administration who called the virus a hoax and said it'd be over by Easter, and by our white supremacist carceral system and school-to-prison pipeline that treats children who suffer from abuse, trauma, and later addiction like criminals rather than human beings who deserve care and rehabilitation. Yet, I was also happy that despite the many and overwhelming challenges our students face, 
that by Christmas they would have completed their bachelor's degrees, a huge accomplishment and source of pride for these men and their families. When we'd have Zoom meetings, I was overjoyed to see them and hurting for missing them so much, and also ashamed and angry about the inequities of the system that meant I could work safely from home with my three adult children safely at home with me, while my students would leave our Zoom calls and head back to unsafe and unjust living conditions, as they watched their friends, cellmates, and even classmates get COVID. Dozens of men, I want to say more than that, but I don't have the exact number and don't want to spread misinformation, have tested positive at Cal State Lancaster, and as Christmas neared and the lockdown got stricter, I didn't know that one day in November, as T flashed his confident smile and stood up from the chair to give his classmate a turn to speak with me, that it'd be the last time I'd ever see him. I'm not sure if he even received the handwritten card I send all my incarcerated students every year. Only a few of my students were able to complete their capstone projects and their degrees before the stricter lockdowns made it so they could no longer access their classrooms or connect with me over Zoom which would have been a huge celebration of their momentous accomplishment, instead was replaced, with them having to fight to remain physically healthy and emotionally strong. Heading into Christmas, several of my students were infected, and all were afraid as they watched their classmates suffer and then be moved into the gym, which was converted to a hospital wing, not knowing whether the men they'd attended college with and transformed their lives with would ever return. Days before Christmas, I was notified the tea was rushed from the prison's makeshift hospital to the emergency room. I was crestfallen. While T wasn't the first in the cohort to become ill, he was the first I knew of at least, I could be wrong, who had multiple risk factors, as an older black man with a pre-existing condition. And while I'm not the praying type, I thought of T every single day and regularly asked for updates on his condition. In mid-January, after weeks of suffering alone, away from his family, away from his cohort, his cellmate, everyone who loved him, T took his last breath. Even though I worked in a mortuary for years prior to becoming an educator, and having talked to thousands of families who've lost loved ones, I've been very fortunate that other than my grandmother when I was in high school until this year, nobody close to me has died. Knowing that T suffered, while I have privileged family members and friends that go outside without masks believe COVID is a hoax, and who've held both Thanksgiving, Christmas, and other large gatherings this year, is enraging. Some of them have lost people to COVID too, and yet they persist in making really bad decisions. And because of them, T cannot continue his research, which would certainly have helped thousands suffering from communication anxiety normally ever be released from prison to return to his family. One of the last sentiments he expressed was guilt over his illness, because he felt derelict in his duty to provide for them. Recently, I was on Zoom with one of the cohort, we'll call him M, who was released from prison a few months ago and who is currently taking my capstone course, who was also close with he. They even were part of or ran a music program together on the inside. So I'd asked him if he'd heard if anything was planned. As far as I knew, there were no plans for a funeral, and other than a touching tribute on the Words Uncaged page on Facebook, which is a wonderful nonprofit to which we should donate and support if we can, I hadn't heard any mention of honoring him. While I had attended a peaceful and socially distanced protest outside the prison, during which I held a sign that said, end death sentence by COVID, it felt too little too late. 
Em and I discussed how the government's cruelty and inaction coupled with people believing conspiracy theories over science and lack of empathy had contributed to so much suffering and dying this past year. We discussed how a scholarship in T's name, and I later learned there there is a scholarship fund on the Words Uncaged page on Facebook, which is good, or maybe naming the program after him, or naming some part of the program after him might be a fitting tribute. M, who was a musician, told me that he would be performing T's favorite song, The Spinners, I'll Be Around, on Instagram Live. This 1973 hit was recorded at the legendary Philly's Sigma Sound Studios. Since T plays guitar, it makes sense this would be his favorite with its smooth, mid-tempo feel and signature guitar riff. According to Wikipedia, the song was included on the group's 1972 self-titled album on Atlantic Records, their first album release for the label. It was initially released as the B-side of the group's first single for Atlantic Records, with How Could I Let You Get Away being the A-side. Radio DJs quickly opted for I'll Be Around, which led to Atlantic flipping the single over and the song was an unexpected hit, eventually spending five weeks at number one on the US R&B chart. This was the group's first number one on the R&B chart, and it also reached number three on the US pop chart in the fall of 1972. It sold over one million copies, the Spinner's first record ever to do so. The success of I'll Be Around would be the first in a series of chart successes the Spinners would have during the 1970s. If you, dear listener, could, the next time you're in the car driving to the store on an errand or sitting in your home enjoying a peaceful Sunday morning, crank up the speakers and play I'll Be Around and think of the brilliant reserved man who died far too soon and celebrate that all he gave to the world, to his family, to his brothers at Cal State Lancaster, to me, and to all who were fortunate to have ever taught him, I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're so inclined, remember all those who are suffering from COVID have died from COVID or who have close friends or family who've died from COVID, especially those who are disproportionately affected due to structural racism and class and income inequality. If you're privileged with time, send a letter to your representatives and elected officials to release incarcerated individuals who are elderly, medically vulnerable, or who are near the end of their sentences. If you're privileged with money, you can Google the National Bail Fund Network's Comprehensive Directory of Bail Funds to find one in your state to donate to. If you're active on social media, you can educate yourself more on this topic and share what you've learned with others. And if you yourself are struggling, I'd like to dedicate one of my own favorite Motown songs, the 1967 song, Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops. My parents played the oldie station in the car all the time when I was growing up, and this is part of how I knew all the hits that T loved. In 2014, interviewed by The Guardian, Four Top singer Duke Fakir said, When Levi, who sang lead on this song, hit the top of his vocal range, it sounded like someone hurting. So he made him sing right up there. Levi complained, but we knew he loved it. Every time they thought he was at the top, he would reach a little further until you could hear the tears in his voice. The line, just look over your shoulder, was something he threw in spontaneously. Levi was very creative like that, always adding something extra from the heart. That cry and hunger took me on an emotional journey, and when I first learned he was very seriously ill, it's the first song that came to mind, and it often played in my head when I thought about him, and I do wish I could have been there for him. The song spent two weeks atop the Billboard Hot 100, 
and is on Rolling Stone's list of 500 best songs of all time. Before I end this episode, I'd like to share a poem that T wrote recently and was published on Facebook on the Words Uncaged page. I am 62 years to life under California's three-strike law, K89875. I am Muslim. I am changing. I am Adrian's husband, love of my life. I am all five children's daddy. I am Thelma's only son still alive out of three sons with her husband. I am my oldest sister's little brother. I am my two younger sisters' big brother. I am my two younger brothers' big brother. I am their inspiration and motivation. The example. Their example. I am leading, learning, and growing. I am African American. I am change. I am a human being. T, you are so much more than a statistic. You deserved better. And I love you. You changed me for the better. And I'll remember you forever. If you've lost someone to COVID or are isolated due to COVID or for any other reason and want to talk, you can message me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or email me at lifeisaplaylist at gmail.com. It's hard to reach out, but I promise I'll always do my best to be there. I'll be around. Until next time. My What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything.